Good morning, my name's Peter and it's my pleasure to read from the scriptures today. This will be the passage that uh, Ben will be speaking to us from. 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading the whole of that chapter. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. And a, truth, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. All right. Um, I recognize those verses might be jarring this morning. Um, we didn't pick them to align with Mother's Day. Uh, we just, we just uh, pick a book of the Bible pretty much every term, and where that falls, that's what we get. So we love God's Word, and so we're going to pray that God would help us as we look at this. Uh, and hopefully as we look at this, we'll be encouraged and challenged uh, by our unique God-given uh, design and the roles that we have to play. So let's pray uh, for this end. God, we thank you so much uh, for your grace to us as we've been singing about and celebrating found in Jesus. Lord, we pray this morning as we come before your word, we pray for two things. Lord, we pray first of all for wisdom, that we would understand this passage, that you would help us know what it's saying uh, in a culture uh, that says something different and uh, throughout a history where this passage has been abused. We pray that you would give us wisdom to understand what your word is saying. Uh, and then secondly, Lord, we pray for strength. We pray for strength to apply this and strength to see this out as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a few weeks ago now, maybe, maybe even a couple of months, there was a show on SBS called Christians Like Us. Uh, I don't know if you saw this um, uh, I don't know if you saw this show, basically what it was, was a reality TV show where they put 10 Christians in a room for seven days and then did their best to make that entertaining. Now, if you didn't see it and you're looking to maybe, in, and you're interested maybe to see it, this is what the SBS director of TV said about it. He said, the 10 participants showcase a diverse range of views and are each deeply passionate and opinionated about their faith. Through debate and discussion, the series invites Australians to engage with the complex elements of Christianity and the issues currently facing the faith. The housemates range, uh, the housemates range from fundamentalist to ultra-progressive, charismatic to controversial. Some live their lives by the word of the Bible and others take a more modern 
interpretation of their faith. And so the editors went about trying to make this as entertaining as possible. And if you watched it, it was everything that you would expect from reality TV, right? There was tears, there was yelling, there was discussions and debates, there was, you know, moments where even as Christians you're looking at it and thinking it's weird, right? They'd go to ministries and people from those ministries would say things hurtful to the other people around you. It was everything that you expect from reality TV. But as we were watching, uh, what I didn't expect was to actually be challenged as I watched this, right? I must confess, have watched some reality TV in my life, never been challenged by what I was watching. But as I was watching Christians Like Us, was challenged by what I saw and actually saddened by it as well. And the reason I was was because of two guys on this show. One was named Chris and the other was named Steve. And both of these guys had a journey in the faith, right? So both of these guys had a journey where they began in the church, but as time went on, as they kind of went on in their faith and in their journey, because of how they were treated by people in the church, they gave up on the church, right? So, so their story was because of the church, they gave up on the church. And so as I was kind of watching that, it was, it was challenging to see that, it was heartbreaking to see that, And not just because of their stories, but the reality that this is just a glimpse into lots of people's stories, right? Like, lots of people have this story where because of how they're treated in the church, they actually give up on the church. Now, maybe you know someone in this situation. Maybe this is you today, and you've come here, and it's been a big step for you today. But but the reality is we know lots of people that when they look at the church, see no purpose of the church, Right? Like lots of people think that there is no reason that we should be gathering together today, that there would be something better we can do with our time. And so, what we want to do is we want to open up God's word and we want to ask the question of this Are they right? Are people who feel this way about the church, that there's no purpose in the church, are they right? Is this a mundane exercise that we do? Is this some sort of weird obligation that we're, you know, a part of? Or is there a greater purpose? to us gathering and meeting together today. What is the purpose of the church? So what we're going to do is we're going to open up God's Word because we here at Southside are a church that love God's Word, the Word of the Bible. We hold on to that. And we're going to see what God says about this, what He says the purpose of the church is. So we pick it up from where we left last week. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. What's the purpose of the church? Well, we see it here in these verses, right? The the purpose of the church is that people everywhere would see Jesus, right? That's the purpose of the church, that people everywhere everywhere would see that the relationship between God and humanity broke, but Jesus the mediator came in to fix that, and he's the ransom who died to take our place. Right? This is the purpose of the church. We see it there in verse 7. Paul says, For this purpose I'm living my life. 
Right? He's like, this is why I wake up in the morning. And then he's inviting the church, the people of God, as we meet together to take part in this purpose as well. Right? This is why we gather. This is why we meet. The purpose of the church is primarily missional. Okay? It's primarily, we gather so that people everywhere can know Jesus. But notice there how Paul starts. Right? So if this is the purpose of the church, notice how he starts, because he doesn't start with a missional strategy. Right? He doesn't start with you know, how you can talk to your friends or neighbors or you know, who, you know, what kind of conversations we can get into it. He begins with prayer. Now, that's not saying missional strategies are bad, right? or, or we, should, you know, we shouldn't think about how we talk to our friends. But there's a reality here that he starts with prayer. Okay? And, and we know why he starts with prayer. We've seen this throughout the last 12 months here at Southside, right? because prayer does stuff. Right? Prayer changes outcomes. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. We believe that prayer does stuff, right? And so if the purpose of us gathering is that people everywhere can know Jesus, it makes sense that we pray to the God in control of everything. And don't you love what he says, right? He says, who do we pray for? Right? He doesn't isolate it to a few people. He just says, pray for everyone, right? Pray for everyone. You see a person, you pray for them. You know people in your life, pray for them. Family, friends, people you work with, people you study with, pray for them. If you say you're going to pray for someone, pray for them, right? He says, pray for everyone everywhere since the purpose of the church is the people would see Jesus. Let's pray that God would work in everyone everywhere. But then he, he moves, doesn't he? Not just to pray for everyone, then he specifies it and he moves to kings and all those in authority, Right? So, so he moves to our leaders. Now, this is challenging for a few reasons. The, the first is he's actually saying, okay, let's as a church pray for our leaders, as Dave did before. The challenge is not just pray for the leaders you like or the leaders you might vote in, but pray for whoever's in charge and pray that they lead such, in such a way that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. Right? So, so there's a challenge there for us to actually pray for our prime minister to pray for you know, the, the leaders of the world, to pray that they would lead in a way that leads to peace and quietness. But then there's another challenge here, isn't there? Right? The point of praying for peace. Because he says, let's pray for our leaders in such a way that we can lead, live lives in all godliness and holiness. So as uh, I was reading this, the challenge for me is when I think about how I grew up and prayed for you know, our leaders... Uh, as a kid especially, I used to pray for our leaders um, that they would lead so you know, we'd have peace, but not in a way that led to godliness, but in a way that we just didn't have to go to war. Right? So maybe this is an insight into my childhood, but I was scared that World War III would happen and I'd have to go and fight in the war. Right? Like If you know me, I'm not good at pretty much anything to do with strength and muscles and stuff like that, right? I mean, I wear long shirts to hide that, but that was me as a kid, right? I was scared. So we prayed for our leaders. I prayed for our leaders so that we wouldn't have war, right? So that I'd live a better life. But that's not the purpose here, is it? That's not the point of praying for our leaders. He says, pray for them so that we'd lead quiet and peaceful lives, not so it leads to better lives, but so that it leads to godliness and holiness, Right? So we pray for our leaders that they lead so we can kind of get on with our business as the church, so that we can keep helping people see Jesus. We pray for peace, not in a way that leads to worldliness, but godliness. 
Right? So as we think about this, we have to recognize that here in Australia, we're in a time of peace, which means before us, Christians prayed this prayer and God has answered that for us right now. Right? We're in a season of grace. We're in a season of peace. You know, like, uh, we don't, maybe we don't experience this that well because, you know, we, we haven't been in a war recently. You know, we, we haven't really felt that. But Christians in generations gone by have felt the sting of wars and here in Australia prayed for peace for us and we're in that time of peace now. But we're not meant to squander this opportunity. Right? We're meant to use this time of peace to grow in godliness and holiness. Right? I mean, people right around the world right now living in a war would kill for what we have. So our freedom is meant to lead us to godliness and holiness, where we use our comfort, our economy, where we use, we use our time to grow to become more like Jesus. Right? So purpose of the church is that people see Jesus everywhere. He starts, he says, pray for everyone and pray for our leaders that we lead godly and holy lives. And then he says in verse 3, this is good, right? It is good that we pray for everyone. It's good that we pray for our leaders. It pleases God, our Savior, who, verse 4 and 5, wants everyone everywhere to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. We pray so that we can get on with our job as the church, which is to help people everywhere see Jesus. Right? That's what we pray for. That's the end that we are praying for. We pray for peace so that we can keep doing our work here. We pray for peace so that we can keep helping people see Jesus because this is God's heart. Right? It's God's heart. He's the Savior. He wants everyone to know about Jesus. And so when we see this here in these verses, we pull it all together and we go, okay, what's the purpose of the church? It's that everyone sees Jesus. So what do we do? We pray for everyone and then we pray for our leaders. Now, there's a couple of immediate challenges as we think about this. The first one is this, right? If you call yourself a part of this a member of our church, if you say that this is your church, then there is a challenge to you to join us in praying, right? Because as the church, we should be praying. There's a challenge here to join us in praying for everyone everywhere and for our leaders. And there's a couple of ways that you can do this. So uh, a couple of opportunities. We have a prayer meeting every Sunday at 8 a.m. We'd love to invite you along because in that time, we pray for our church and we pray for everyone everywhere. Right? We'd love to have you there and, and pray with you at that point. We know, though, that 8 a.m. on a Sunday is not an ideal time. So we have other opportunities. We have a prayer team here at Southside who have committed to praying for 15 minutes each day for our church and for stuff going on. If you want to join that team, we'd love you to join that team. We have growth groups throughout the week where we meet in people's homes and we pray. Or maybe this season of life that you're in doesn't suit that. But, but we'd love to encourage you and challenge you and invite you to pray, to pray with us because God does stuff. Prayer does stuff. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. So that's the first challenge, that we should be people of prayer. But then the second is that we actually realize what the purpose of church is. Right? This is not a club with closed doors. This is not some sort of thing where we have a waiting list and then after a certain time you can join us. The purpose of us gathering together is to be encouraged and fueled and stirred on to go out so that people everywhere can know Jesus. 
Right? The purpose of us gathering is missional. We are meant to continually help people see Jesus. That's God's heart for the world, and that's God's heart for the church, that we would be used in that way. Right? So this is what the purpose of the church is, that people see Jesus. So, so then there's the question of how does this play out? Right? What, what, how does this play out in the church? How does it play out for us, kind of living in the mess, right? the mess which is the church? What does it look like for us to go about this purpose? Uh, it's interesting, last week we began this series. Uh, Mikey kicked us off with uh, such a helpful sermon as he talked about how the mess that we're talking about is the church. Right? So uh, he used the illustration, if you remember, of a husband and wife coming together um, and they both have their kind of family of origin stuff that they're going on and they come together in one house and they just have to work out how that works together. Um, uh, my brother calls that the family of origin stuff foo-poo, your family of origin poo that you have to kind of work through. And so then uh, he talked about how as a church it's kind of that on steroids. Because we've got lots of different people who gather together with lots of backgrounds and opinions and personalities. And so he, we, we looked at how we are the mess, right? So living in the mess is not just the mess of out there. We are the mess. And so Timothy is a book to the mess, right, to the church. And it's wisdom on how the church can kind of live in the mess. Now, as we'll see, as we'll work through this book, Paul's got lots of good ideas on how the church should operate, right? And what we're going to see is that God is a God of structure and order because that's who God is. And so the church should be a structured and ordered kind of thing, right? And so we're going to look at how this plays out in the church, the, the way we kind of structure the mess. But it's interesting, as we think about the purpose of the mess, how does this play out? Well, Paul begins with men and women. And, and what we're going to see is, is with this men and women thing section here, he's inviting us as men and as women to take part in our unique, God-given, created roles for the sake of the church that people everywhere can see Jesus. So as we look at this, what we're going to see is that if we can take our part in this, people will see Jesus. So how does it play out? Well, he begins with men. And we see this in verse 8, and it's one verse clear and concise and helpful, says this, Therefore, in light of all we've just looked at, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. One verse the men get here. And as a man who can't do two things at once, I'm appreciative of a clear and concise verse on what men need to do. Right? And in light of what we're about to get for the women, which is seven complex and confusing verses, it couldn't be any more contrast or contrasting, right? Men get one verse here, and the challenge is to the men. Now, this is not the only challenge to men throughout the book. We'll see this. But here it is, and the challenge is men, be men of prayer. Right? Be men of prayer. Be marked by the fact that you are a praying man. Right? And as we pray, men, we are lifting holy hands. Now, holy hands is just a posture in prayer. It's a posture of humility and repentance. Right? So we are men who pray humbly, running back to Jesus without anger or disputing. Right? One clear and concise verse. And yet, right, if we think about the contrast, especially between the women's section in a moment, 
if we think about the history of the church, man, we've stuffed this up. Right? We had one verse, be men of prayer, right? Without anger or disputing. And yet you think about how men are known throughout history of the church. This is not what we're known for. Right? I mean, you think about the Royal Commission lately. Right? And you look at that in Australia and the insane amounts of abuse that happen under the hands of men. Right? We're meant to be known for prayer, not lifting abusive hands, but holy hands without anger or dispute, and yet that's not what we're known for. Right? In fact, uh, on Christians like us, as we were watching, the reason Steve's story was so heartbreaking is because, I mean, you look at this guy, he's this kind of 60-year-old guy that you would think, you know, he's tough, he doesn't have emotion, and yet on national TV, with tears, was telling his story about under the charge of men in the church and then in his school, he was abused over and over again, trapped. It's no wonder he gave up on the church, right? Of course he did. That's how he was treated by the church. We had one job, not to lift abusive hands, but holy hands in prayer, to be marked by that humility, not with anger or disputing. And yet what we're known for in the church is the opposite of that. I mean, we were watching a Louis Thoreau documentary this week. If you, Louis uh, a great uh, journalist who does really good documentaries that we appreciate, and he was doing a uh, documentary on abuse. And to be fair, it wasn't in the church, but if you think about the Royal Commission, this line could be applied to it because he said this gut-wrenching line where he said, they say monsters don't attack children, nice men do. Man, we're not meant to be known by that. Right, one clear verse, be men marked by prayer. Without anger or disputing, where you use your God-given, where we use our God-given created order and design for the good of the church, not the good of our own selfish desires. This is what we're meant to be known by. Right, and when we do this, men, when we do verse 8, people will see Jesus. They will because we will stand out. And when we don't, people will run from Jesus. As Steve did, as many others did, they will run from the church and they will run from the saving of message of Jesus and men will be held accountable for that. Right? So he begins with men here in verse 8 and he says, this is what your lives must be marked by, that you are men of prayer where the only hands you lift are holy hands. In humility, where we run back to Jesus. Living lives not of anger or disputing. This is the challenge for us men. So, is this the mark of our lives? Are we men of prayer? Is this what guides our lives and drives our lives, that we are men of prayer? That we aren't marked by anger or disputing, but where we constantly pray in humility, running back to Jesus. And as we do this, men, we'll be like Jesus too, won't we? The, the man who did this perfectly, who lived his life in prayer, where he didn't lift abusive hands but holy hands often, and where he laid his life down for other people. So, so men, the challenge is there for us, right? It's clear, it's concise, it's simple. There's no escaping this, right? We have no excuses here. Men, we know what we need to do. We need to be men marked by prayer. But see, if the, men's ver the man's verse was 
clear and concise, what we get then is seven verses that is quite tricky and complex for women. So he invites men to be involved in their God-given created design and then he moves to women. And we see this in verse 9. He says this, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in, the faith, uh, in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So men, our job is to be men marked by prayer. And then he moves to women. And as we look at those verses, right? Men, maybe those verses were jarring for you today. And, and maybe that was hard for you today. And I think these verses are complex and tricky, not just because of what they say, but also in how they've been used Right, that there is a reality here that throughout history, right, men and women have abused these verses to shut down women in the church, and so we want to recognize that, right, and call that for what it is, but we don't want to give up on these verses either, right, because we love God's word, we love the Bible. This is God's word that's given to us for our good and benefit and edification. So, what do these verses say? How do we understand this? Um, this week, was talking to Elizabeth, my wife, about this. And as we read that, uh, we kind of, I asked her what questions she has on this passage because it's jarring. Right? So together we worked on some questions of this uh, passage. And I hope uh, we got seven questions for seven verses. And I hope that as we work through those questions, we'll understand these verses uh, a little bit better. And it's going to be uh, helpful for us. So question number one of these verses. Are men and women equal? Right? Because throughout the Bible, we're told they are. Right, that men and women are equally valued and worthy, that they're equally dignified. A, a few uh, weeks ago, there was a women's event where the women were told that they are co-heirs with Christ. Right? We are told throughout the Bible that Jesus died for men and women. He was the ransom for both. And yet, as we read these verses, it kind of feels like that's not true. So are men and women equal? Now, part of the problem in this is what our culture says regarding this issue. So when our culture speaks, and this has been a voice that's been getting louder and louder, when our culture speaks, it says that men and women are equal, but to be equal, we have to be exactly the same. Right? So, so that's what our culture says. That's the voice that men and women are equal, and to be equal, we are exactly the same. But there's a problem with that, and the problem is that we're different. And yet, we're equal in the Bible. So throughout the Bible, it affirms our differences. And yet it says, but we're still equal, equally valued, equally worthy, equally dignified. Right? So equality doesn't mean we need to be the same. Equality can mean that we are different. And that's what the Bible affirms. Okay? So we're equal, but different. So what does this difference look like? That's question number two, particularly focused in on what's going on with Adam and Eve. 
Right? What's going on with Adam and Eve is Eve being blamed for the, you know, the whole Genesis thing, the whole sin thing, is this difference being described in a way that's Adam's better than, men are better, and women are less than. What's going on with Adam and Eve? Now, to understand this, we've got to go back a little bit to Genesis. Now, we won't go there today, but uh, I'll give you the broad sweep of Genesis 1 to kind of 3. God made man, Adam, And it wasn't good that he was alone, right? And so out of Adam, God made Eve, right? And and what we see when Adam sees Eve, right, is there a sense in his voice that he's kind of, you know, he feels like he's better than her, right? If you remember the story, he sees her and he just starts singing, right? It's kind of, I don't know, if, if... I don't know, maybe some guys wouldn't do this. Maybe Adam wouldn't have done this before with the animals, but he sees Eve and he's just like, man, this is awesome. Right? And, and what he says, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right? Now, in that moment, there's no sense of superiority between Adam and Eve. Adam doesn't sense that he's better than Eve. He, he looks at her and says, this is so good. Right? Now, in that moment, God created Adam and Eve different, not the same. Right? And I think if, Adam, if God made another Adam, I don't think Adam's going, I don't think he's singing for starters. Right? He's not as happy about that. So he makes them different but equal. And in that moment, in their differences, right, there is different roles to be had. So God gives Adam the responsibility to lead and gives Eve the responsibility to be the helper. Now, I know helper has baggage, right? But biblically, helper isn't described in a negative way. In fact, we see that within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit is described as the helper. Right? So God is not describing the Holy Spirit in that moment as less than or less superior. He's saying we're different, equal but different. Okay, so Adam and Eve have different roles. Adam's job is to lovingly lead. We'll see biblically what that means is laying his life down for her. Eve's job is to lovingly help. And then what we see is this snake enters into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve. And Eve takes the fruit and Adam does nothing. Right Now, what Paul is doing by touching on this story is he's not pinning it all on Eve. In fact, again, throughout the New Testament as well, we'll actually see a number of times where we're told sin entered through Adam. Right? So he's not pinning it all on Eve, but what he's pointing out is that when we, as God's people, take part in our unique God-given design, which is different, we will flourish, but when that breaks, we won't flourish. So when Eve took the fruit, the created order was reversed. Adam didn't lead, Eve led. And Adam stood there and did nothing. Now Adam's still punished for what he did. Adam's still held responsible for that. right? So he's not pinning it on Eve here, but he's talking about the created roles and design which we have. He's inviting us as men and women to take part in that role. Okay, So that's why he goes to Adam and Eve. Which leads us to the third question. What is the difference? What's the difference between men and women? What does that look like on the ground? Particularly, can women teach? Right Now, it, it's clear in 1 Timothy, right? We looked at this. It's a book to a church on how to live in the mess of church. Okay, so the context here is church, right? The church setting. And the teaching Paul has in mind here is the teaching which we would call preaching. Right, so the upfront declaration of God's word in the regular church gathering week after week. Okay, that's the kind of teaching that Paul has in mind here. So this is not teaching from the sense of the informal teaching that takes place, you know, in a home. 
Right? In fact, later on, we're told that uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother are championed and celebrated for the way they taught Timothy. So it's not talking about any teaching. It's the teaching that takes place from the, from the pulpit with the, when the Word of God is preached in the gathering week after week. So it's not informal teaching. It's not teaching outside of this place. It's not teaching that takes place in kids' church or youth. It's not saying that women can't share or their voices or teach men at any point. This is speaking about preaching. Okay, so we actually need to affirm that. Right on, on Friday night, one of my youth leaders, Emily, taught us what she learned from a conference a few weeks ago. And it was awesome. Right? So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about teaching that happens through prayer or Bible reading or singing. This is the preaching that takes place week after week. Now, um, if you want to know more about this, because maybe that's still jarring, uh, one of the books that I found really helpful on this is a book called God's Good Design by a woman called Claire Smith. Uh, so it's all about the roles between uh, God, uh, between men and women in the church. And on speaking on this, she says this really great quote. She says this, This, the reason women are told not to teach, is not because women are less intelligent, less gifted, less useful, more gullible, or somehow inferior. They are not. And these are not the reasons given for these commands. Paul says nothing here about women's capabilities, and it is clear elsewhere that he recognizes the valuable and God-given gifting and contribution of women in the progress of the gospel and the life of the church. Nevertheless, because of God's creation purposes for men and women, and because of the events of the fall, the participation and contribution of women in the Christian assembly is to be different from those of men. And in this text, most particularly those men God has gifted and appointed to teach and lead our local Christian communities. Right now, I love what she says there at the beginning. Right? It's not because women are less intelligent, less gifted, less useful, more gullible, or somehow inferior. Right? This is an incredibly smart and intelligent woman that has written this book. And our church here at Southside has been blessed by women who are intelligent and gifted and useful, contributing to the life of our church. But, she says, nevertheless, because of God's creation purposes for men and women, the participation and contribution is to be different. Not less than, not less valued, not less important, but different. If you want to know more, I'd encourage you to read that book. It's so good. Uh, but the teaching here that Paul's talking about is the teaching of God's word week after week in the gathering of the church. Number four, what does it mean to submit to authority? Now, submit is such a dirty word, right? It's maybe the dirtiest word that you could say to someone. We don't like to be told to submit. So what is this idea to submit to authority? Well, first of all, right, this is not saying that women need to submit to any man. Nor is it saying that we need to submit to any authority, although if the police pull you over, it's probably a good idea to listen to that. It's not saying that. It's also not saying to submit to abusive authority. Okay, This is in the context of church, and the authority that Tim, uh, Paul is talking about to Timothy is the authority of the church, which we'll look at next week and in the coming weeks, is the elders. Now, interestingly enough, this is not just a challenge for women. Right? We're told that men need to submit to this authority as well, the authority in the church. Right? The authority, which we'll see next week, isn't authority that abuses their power, but authority that lays their life down for the sake of people. 
Right? We see this uh, next week. We'll look at elders and deacons and stuff like that. The elders of the church, and the way this plays out at Southside, we vote men in to be elders of the church who are going to commit to laying their life down for the church. And what this is saying here is an encouragement to women, but we also get this encouragement to, when, to men to listen to and respect the elders of the church. Right? The men we voted in to lay their lives down for the church. So not any authority, not any man, not abusive authority. Number five, are women being told to be quiet? The answer is simple, no. Not in the context where this verse is used to shut up women. Right? This is not being used in that way, um, which has been how sometimes it's been used. Okay, so, so what do we, how do we understand this in this verse again? Well, again, what's interesting is that already men and women have been told to live quiet lives in verse 2. So we pray for our leaders that we'd live peaceful and quiet lives. And this is the same word there. And the idea is that we would kind of learn in peacefulness, not disruptive. Now, interesting, men have been told that specifically, hey, don't be disruptive, right? So, or disputing, right? Same kind of idea here. So what this is getting at, and again, the challenge is for both men and women here, is when we gather together, not to be learning in such a way that is, you know, disruptive, but that where we can kind of fall under God's word, listen to God's word. We don't want women to shut up. We need women. God is inviting them to take part in our community. But this is saying in the context of church, let's learn together without this being disruptive or disputing. Right? That's what that's getting at. Number six, a women saved through childbearing. Weird verse, right? That's strange to, for something to say something like that. It just feels odd. And so when we read something like this, what we've got to do is we've got to let the Bible explain the Bible. Again, what I mean by that is if we come across something like this, Got to ask, what does the whole Bible say about how we are saved? And what we see over and over again is that we're not saved by works, not saved by what we do, we're saved by what Jesus has done. Okay, we saw this in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Remember, Paul said, I am the worst of all sinners, but Christ Jesus came to die to save sinners. Right? So he didn't say, I'm the worst of all sinners and somehow I'm going to figure out how to have kids. Ray points us to Jesus. Then we saw already in, this, uh, in chapter 2. He says, Jesus came into the world as the mediator to pay the ransom for both men and women. So it can't mean that women are saved through having kids. So what does it mean? Well, uh, what it means, I think in this context, in the context of inviting women to take part of their unique God-given design, is to, if we can have kids, if women can have kids, to, to do that. Right? To take part in the role that's unique to them, right? But, but in the context, again, it's not saying that you have to. It's inviting women to take part in that if it's possible. Then it's also speaking against false teachers of the time that were talking about family not being a gift. And here, right, we see Paul affirming that family is a gift, right? So we are not saved through childbearing. Women are not saved through childbearing. They're saved by faith. Now, again, uh, Claire Smith writes something really good on this. She says this, uh, this quote, This does not mean that all Christian women must have children. Rather, that women are to be content with the roles and responsibilities God has ordained for them. That might include children. It might not. It might include marriage. It might not. But however their lives unfold, women are to be content with the patterns of relationship between men and women that God has instituted 
for our own good. We're not saved through childbearing. Women are not saved through childbearing. We are saved by grace in Jesus alone. And what this is getting at here, it's an invitation to women to take part of their unique God-given design in the church for the benefit of the church. That's number six. Number seven, finally, are women being told not to wear jewelry. Finished on some good news here. No, <laughs> right? They're not. And uh, encourage men to, if you're thinking about engaging, uh, being engaged one time in the future and proposing to your wife, don't try this one, right? Where you get down on one knee and you open up the ring box and it just says, good works. That's not going to end well for you, right? <laughs> Buy the ring, Get the ring, right? So this is not saying that women are, are not to wear jewelry or do their hair, but what it is saying is just don't be known for wearing jewelry or nice hair or whatever, right? So basically what it's saying is don't adorn yourself in nice stuff, adorn yourself in good works, right? So it's fine to wear jewelry. It's great to do your hair, right, for men and women, right? Let me encourage do your hair, but, right, <laughs> but don't be known for it. Be known for what we do. Be known for our good works. Right? So the encouragement is to women, don't be known by what you wear, be known by what you do. So seven questions, I hope, give some kind of guidance in those seven verses and help us realize that what Paul is doing here is he's inviting both men and women to take part in our God-given design for the sake of the church. Right? And as we pull this all together, what we see is that the invitation to men on the surface is to be men of prayer, who lift holy hands, where our lives are marked by prayer, not in anger or disputing, but where we are men of prayer. And to women, it's don't be adorned in what you wear, be adorned in what you do. Now, there's obviously more to that, as we've talked about it. There's more in how this operates in the mess of church. But the reality is, as we pursue God's word in this and wisdom in this, we start to see that God uses us as men and women for the sake of people everywhere coming to know Jesus. There's purpose to the mess. There's grace in the mess. And as we do our best to follow Jesus in the mess, people will see Jesus. So he told us to pray. Let's pray now. God, again, we pray for wisdom and guidance and strength in how this applies in our lives and in our church. God, we pray that you would today heal those who have faced hurt from people misusing and abusing their God-given design. Father, we pray for grace there. Lord, we pray that moving forward, we would be a church who is known, a people who are known for laying our lives down for others. That we would be men here today that are men marked by prayer. That we wouldn't be men of anger or disputing, but, or disputing, but we would be men who, who are men of humility, who follow Jesus, who continue to turn back to him. We pray for our women, that we would be women who are known for what we do, for our good works. And we pray for, Lord, for this as this applies in our church. We pray for wisdom in the mess and guidance in the mess. And we pray that as we go about achieving this, go about doing the, what you've called us to and, and playing our part in God's given design, Lord, we pray that people would see Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. It's the man Jesus Christ. Help us in this, we pray in his name. Amen.